0: Um, but just share, what do you think you would say if you had to summarise the story of Exodus in one word? Alright, what do people think? Anyone have a word? Just feel free to shout it out. Exodus. Very good. Could do worse. That's what the editors of our Bibles have gone for, isn't it? Life. Great. Rescue. Rescue. Grace. Grace. Excellent. Redemption. Redemption. Obedience. There you go, that's interesting. And the word I chose this week um is freedom. You know, a lot of those words that we've spoken about are capturing that idea of freedom, life, rescue, redemption. And we love freedom, don't we? I think in our culture there is probably nothing that is more of a core value to us than freedom. What is what is the good life? It is a life that is free. But what does that even mean? If you do a Google image search for freedom, you get a lot of this kind of thing. So free. A person all alone on a mountain, in a field. And this is our cultural picture of freedom, isn't it? It's me in isolation by myself with no one else able to do whatever I want when I want. It's freedom from, which is a very good thing, freedom from oppression, freedom from constraints. But then what? Where do these people go from here? Have you ever wondered that? (laughs) What are they actually free for? Because when you think about it, a person all by themselves with their arms outstretched on a mountain, after a while they start to look less free and more just lost. They start to look a little bit like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness in these chapters of Exodus. Yes, they're rescued from slavery, Yes, they are free from Pharaoh, but now what? Where are they going? What are they free for? And so we need to keep reading into the second half of the Exodus story because there's still 20 chapters to go. Did you notice that? And the second half of this epic book completes for us a far fuller vision of what real freedom really is. Not only freedom for, not only freedom from, but freedom for freedom for worship, freedom for flourishing, freedom to grow in obedience and joy and glory. And this was God's end game for the Exodus all along. He said to Moses back in chapter 4, go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. Do you see that there? Freedom from let my son go freedom for, so he may worship me. God delivers his people from oppression and now on the mountain he delivers his good law to guide them. Now we don't naturally connect law and freedom, do we? Law feels like the very opposite of freedom, that's restrictive, that's restraining. But God's law is designed for that very purpose. James in the New Testament calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty. Because true freedom comes not when I am all by myself, all on my own. True freedom is found when I'm embedded in right relationships with the God above me and the people around me. And this is why we need both halves of the Exodus story. God draws Israel out from slavery in order to draw them into relationship with himself. God has rescued his firstborn son, And now, like a good father, he is going to raise his son. He's going to teach and instruct his son. He's going to encourage and urge his son to grow and mature into a life of worship. That's a good message for Father's Day, don't you? One writer says this, human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even our own gods. Everybody serves somebody. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel to find deliverance from serving the old master, it is for them to find delight in serving the new one. The law of God is the law of freedom because it is the law of love. We have it on the very good authority of Jesus Christ himself. That's what the law is all about. Love God, love your neighbour. That's how we're going to unpack this chapter before us today. Love your God, love your neighbour, for this is what it means to be truly free. And so the Ten Commandments begin unapologetically with God. And this is a puzzle to many people in our world today. Every now and then you'll see an article written or a book released um, which is from some atheist thinker offering a kind of modern update on the Ten Commandments, a guide to morality more fitting to our secular age. And it's these first few commandments that always come under the fiercest scrutiny. So, for example, when the atheist Christopher Hitchens takes it upon himself to give the Ten Commandments a bit of an update. It's quite a bold move, isn't it, to give yourself the job of God's editor? But he said this, So then, how to prune and how to amend? Numbers one through three, they can simply go, since they have nothing to do with morality and are no more than a long, rasping throat clearing by an admittedly touchy dictator. Mere fear of unseen authority is not a sound basis for ethics. Now, part of the problem here, I think, is that the Ten Commandments have been almost too successful. In our culture, they exist as these kind of moral rules all on their own. We tend to think of them as a top ten rules for life. They just float around in the abstract, completely disconnected from the Exodus story. And in our culture, it's the traditional translation, you know, thou shalt not that first comes to mind. And so even as Christians, as we hear about the Ten Commandments, maybe you even did this tonight as we read this chapter. Yeah, I know how this goes. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Yeah, yeah, God's a bit grumpy. I know what this is all about. But that's not where Exodus begins. That's not what Exodus 20 is saying. Did you notice that as we read it? I can see some people looking at their Bibles, trying to see what I mean. What does Exodus 20 say? It begins like this. And God spoke all these words, which in itself is interesting. Nowhere in the Bible are these words referred to as the Ten Commandments. They are words from God. And what is the first word from God to his people in verse 2? I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, and then you shall have no other gods before me. See, God is not a touchy dictator. He is Israel's great rescuer and redeemer. He has brought them out of slavery before he makes any demands of them. And the commandments are not founded upon mere fear. They flow from what God has already done in his great love. This God is not unseen. He's been displaying his power from chapter 1 onwards. And so, in essence, God is saying something like this in his law. Because I have saved you from Egypt, you should now live as a people who have been saved from Egypt. The words of the Lord in Exodus 20 are not God's top ten rules for life. They are an invitation to relationship with the God of the universe. The God who has already taken the initiative, who has already committed to be their God before he ever makes a command. They are to love the Lord who has loved them first. And so, because the God of Exodus is the only true and living God, the Israelites are to worship no other God. They should remain faithful to the God who is unswervingly faithful to them. That is the first word. You shall have no other gods before me. And because God has shown that the idols of the nations are false gods... Because he's revealed the gods of Egypt to be empty and powerless and of absolutely no use to anybody, the Israelites should not go and make idols of their own. They should serve the Creator and not created things because only the Creator has served and saved them. That is the second word. And because God has made this people his treasured possession, Because God has put his name on them just like Andy in Toy Story puts his name on his beloved toys the Israelites are to honour God in all they do. It is no light thing to bear the name of God. They are to live holy lives because God has called them to be a holy nation in order to display his goodness and glory to the world. That's the third word. And so here is true freedom. Faithfulness to the God who has saved them. Service to the God who has created them. Honour for the God who has called them. Love for the Lord their God with all their heart and all their soul and all their mind. For this God has loved them first. A few years ago we had a family from church over one night and one of the boys was chatting with me in the kitchen while I was finishing up dinner he was in about year three at the time and he was telling me that some of the kids in his class say oh my you know like OM. bless his little soul he wouldn't even say the letter in the acronym of the blasphemy and he said that when his friends use god's name like that it makes him so sad in his heart That right there is the beating heart of the law of God. And that right there was a little boy who was truly free. Free from being swept along by peer pressure. Free to think for himself. Free to stand out from the people around him. Standing on his own two feet. Because his heart was full of love for God and a desire for God to be honoured in the world. Because that boy knew that God is good. Unfailingly good. And so living with God and for God really is the good life. Outside of the Bible and that boy in our kitchen, no one has expressed this truth more clearly and beautifully than Augustine. He was a 5th century bishop in northern Africa. And as a young man, he had chased after just about every idol that there was. He pursued pleasure and power. He followed his passions until he met Jesus. And he wrote this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. In the law of God, there is true freedom and real rest for our souls to know and to love the God who has made us and who has saved us. Which is why the fourth word is all about rest. It's the command to keep the Sabbath. It's some command, isn't it? You must not do anything. (laughs) How different is this to the life they lived in Egypt? How different is this new master to their old master? Pharaoh, remember, worked them ruthlessly. He laid upon them a heavy burden of harsh labour. But now the life of Israel is to be marked by regular patterns of Sabbath rest. That's what every command that follows in the law, in the chapters of Exodus and the other books that follow, it's directed at this great goal, the rest of the people of God. It's a rest that they receive, from the Lord who has rescued them, and it's a rest that then flows out into all of their horizontal relationships. And so you see that there in verse 10. God said, The seventh day is a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. God gives his people rest. And that rest is to be experienced in the household. It's even to be extended to the animals that you own. And it expands out from Israel to the nations around them. And this is the logic of the whole law. Love for God flows out into love for our neighbours. That's not just, you realise, an abstract love for all humanity. You know, I love all people. No, an actual Practical love for the real physical person right in front of you. And that's the thing. People are much harder to love than humanity, don't you think? That's why the fifth word starts in the household. Honour your father and mother. Neighbour love doesn't start next door, it starts in the next room. And that love will then ripple outwards in all that we do and say and think. That's the focus of the final five words. It focuses on our deeds, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal. It focuses on our words, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. It focuses on our thoughts, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbour. These are the ten words that God speaks to his people. They speak of a love for the Lord your God and a love for your neighbour. Earlier this year, Izzy and I did a sculpting class with her family we did it with uh, them as a bit of a Christmas present. We started with a little block of clay about that big and with the help of a quite severe Russian lady over Zoom, uh, we made a bust of another member in our family. This is what we came up with. Um, someone was impressed there. <laughs> did you hear that noise? Um, can you tell which one Izzy made of me? Um, We did a comparison. (laughs) That was shown with permission, by the way. I I think she nailed it. The whole thing, though, did give me a real appreciation for the work of people who can actually make sculptures that look like real people. Um, The way that you can take a kind of empty and formless block of marble like this in order to make that is incredible to me. The rough marble is chipped away, chiseled away, and it reveals something beautiful. And this is what God is doing, I think, through the 10 words of Exodus 20. It might seem odd to us. Why are the commands all negative? You know, do not do this, do not do this, do not do this. But all these do-nots are part of God's creative transformation of his people. And as God, the master craftsman, chisels away murder... From the Israelites, it creates the space for them to pursue the flourishing of all life and forgiveness. As God chisels away adultery, it creates the space for purity and faithfulness. As God removes false witness from His people, it creates the space for truth and justice as stealing and coveting are carved away. It's not just so we'll leave our neighbours alone, it's so that we'd move towards them, to actually care for them in active generosity and hospitality. And when idolatry and hypocrisy have been eliminated, when violence and identity and theft and lies have been chiselled away, what is left is a people of rest and rejoicing passed down from generation to generation and spreading out to all the nations. These 10 words reveal to us the image of God's firstborn son who have been rescued from slavery, now free to live in the true freedom of love for God and love for their neighbours. And so how might we expect the Israelites to respond to the law? God's good words given to them of every nation in all the earth. What joy they must have felt. They must have been so thankful, just overflowing with gratitude for the goodness of God. We'll look in verse 18. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But don't have God speak to us or we will die. Israel cannot even bear to listen to the Lord's voice. They're meant to be Yahweh's firstborn son. But at Sinai, their heart is hard. Too hard to hear the voice of the Father. The law is good, but they are not. And a good law for a bad people will always sound like death. God has liberated his son and he wants them to be truly free. He wants Israel to be free from tyrannical gods, free from empty idols, free to rejoice and rest, free from the fear of violence and seduction and theft and rumour and gossip. But all of that freedom is only possible if the souls of Israel are free. And the same is true for us. The law is good but we are not. And so left on our own, the law hangs over us like a hammer of judgment ready to fall. The law is powerless to save us and so it only serves to condemn us. But there's hope. There's hope for Israel. There's hope for you and me because God does have a son who conforms to these 10 words. There is a son of the Father, the eternal son, who is faithful where all of us have failed. And so we find Jesus in Matthew's gospel standing like Moses on a mountain, delivering the words of God to the people. And Jesus says, don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus loved the law. It wasn't death to him. It was the delight of his heart, his deepest desire. Even as Christians, I think we can sometimes approach the law as if it's just bad news. We need someone to come along and take the law away to get rid of it. But that's not what Jesus says. We don't need the law to be abolished. We need it to be fulfilled. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. Which, as we finish tonight, means three things. Firstly, Jesus fulfills the law by filling out the law for us. He shows us the true beauty of the law when it's really lived as God intended. Jesus is like the perfectly chiselled marble statue revealing the goodness and the glory of God's word. Jesus shows us that life lived according to God's good law is not restrictive, it's not constraining, it is radiant, it's glorious. Everywhere Jesus goes, he brings Sabbath rest as he honours God, his Father in heaven and loves him with everything that he has. And so he gives life to the people around him. He brings healing and fullness and resurrection. Jesus himself is pure. He is faithful. He even lays down his life for the sake of his bride, which is the church. Jesus is generous, isn't he? He gives abundantly to all who draw near to him in faith. Jesus doesn't lie. He doesn't gossip or slander. He speaks the truth of the kingdom of God. And instead of coveting, desiring for himself what others have, he gives away all he has, pouring himself out in selfless and sacrificial love. What does the law of God look like in practice? It looks like the Son of God himself, arms outstretched to the world, dying on a cross, and then rising again for your salvation and for mine. Jesus shows us that the law is beautiful. And secondly, Jesus fulfills the law by filling up the law for us. You might have heard before of something called the Heidelberg Catechism, We should get catechisms back in fashion, guys. And it's like those question and answer documents that like, what do you think about this? And then everyone learns an answer that teaches them the truth of the gospel. The Heidelberg Catechism was basically designed for illiterate German peasants. There are about a hundred questions that unfold the truth of God for them. Question four says this, what does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this summary in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. It's a very good summary from Jesus. Good to remember that. Question five. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I have a natural tendency to hate God and to hate my neighbour. It's pretty blunt, isn't it? But it's a good bluntness. That's gospel truth, don't you think? think naturally, we doubt God. And we accuse God rather than loving him. Naturally, we love ourselves instead of our neighbour, often at the expense of our neighbour, rather than loving our neighbour as ourselves. The law is good, but for us it always remains a standard unfulfilled. We just can't live up to it. And so all it can do is condemn us. But Jesus lives up to the law in all its fullness. Where we fail, he is faithful. And he meets the lofty demands of God's law on our behalf, for us. And then, incredibly, he suffers the judgment of the law that we deserve on our behalf, for us. The hammer of God's judgment falls on him so that we might be free. On the cross, he suffers as a law-breaker so that God might see us as law keepers. The true faithful Son suffers in our place, so that we would be adopted into God's family, so that we would know the true freedom and the real rest of life with God, both now and for all eternity. See, it's right for us as we read a passage like this today to feel the weight of God's law to know how far we fall short to know that standing on our own there is no hope for the law to save us but the good news is we don't have to stand alone and for all who draw near to Jesus in faith Romans 8 tells us therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did by sending his own son. And then finally, Jesus fulfills the law by filling us up to keep the law. In essence, Jesus says to us, I have saved you from sin and so now you can live as a people who have been saved from sin. He says, as I have loved you, now love one another. And he doesn't deliver that law to us on tablets of stone. He writes it on our hearts. And Jesus fills us with his own Holy Spirit so that the law would no longer be death to us, but we would delight in it. That it would be our deepest desire to love God and to love our neighbour. And so for the Christian, the law is not a hammer of judgement looming over us, It becomes more like firm ground beneath our feet that we can build our lives upon. It's not like a barrier keeping us out of a VIP area. It's now like a red carpet laid before us, ushering us into the presence of God and as a part of his family. It becomes a signpost. Every time we read the law, it shows us our sin. It restrains our unruly passions. It guides our actions and our words and our thoughts. And most of all, it just keeps pointing us back to Jesus. And as we keep listening to the powerful and creative word of God, God will start to chip away at us. He will chisel us and shape us into the likeness of Jesus, his son. And we will become sons and daughters of our father in heaven. We'll become people who pursue the flourishing of all life who seek after forgiveness and purity and faithfulness. We will be a people of truth and justice, of outgoing, active generosity and hospitality. That is, we will become a people who are truly free. So let me conclude with this word of exhortation from Galatians 5. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free But do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbour as yourself. Amen.